Nicholas Bornois of CapitalLink, welcoming you uh, to the first uh, panel of, uh, of the forum. Uh, this is a tremendous uh, topic, dry bulk shipping. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Randy Givens from Jefferies, who is going to uh, moderate the panel. And of course, I'd like to thank uh, our uh, great panelists, uh, Hamish, Polis, uh, Ulrich, Martin, and uh, Stamatis. And uh, I'm going to turn off my camera. Uh, I'd like to point out exactly how the online version allows us now to connect uh, major industry participants from all over the world to share their insight. We have people in Athens, in New York, in Cyprus, in Norway, in Singapore. Uh, I think I said Athens. So this is really uh, great to be with you. Randy, you can take over. And again, thank you to everybody. Awesome. Hey, thanks for that introduction, Nicholas. Always a pleasure to be a part of the Capital Link Forum. Uh, this dry bulk panel certainly will be a, a hot topic. So let's get into it. My name is Randy Gibbons, Head of Energy Maritime Shipping Equity Research at Jefferies. Today's panel, we have five of the top executives in a very hot sector, and that's dry bulk shipping. So I'll do a quick introduction, uh, and then we'll get into some questions. Hamish Norton, President of Starbolt Carriers. Martin Wade, CEO of Grinrod Shipping. Stamata Santanis, CEO of Synergy Maritime Holdings. Polis Hagiano, CEO of Safe Walkers, and Ulrich Anderson, CEO of Golden Ocean Group. So lots to discuss. Uh, I have a list of questions here, so we'll try to run through these and maybe we'll have some time for Q&A at the end. So feel free to submit some of those questions to those watching. Uh, starting it off, you know, there's certainly some people listening uh, who maybe haven't looked at dry bulk in a while, certainly not dry bulk experts. So we're gonna try to change that over the course of the next 50 minutes. The market's experienced some very impressive results over the last really two years, and the industry remains very bullish, and at least my humble opinion, uh, one of the, the hottest sectors uh, for at least the next few years. So with that, if we can just do a quick overview of what has really led to these strong rates uh, over the past several quarters. Hamish, largest, most diversified fleet, I'll give you the honors to start us off. Okay, so you know, basically, what has led to the to the strong rates? You know, first of all, there's there's sort of a global synchronized demand recovery from COVID nineteen across all major cargoes and routes. Um, you know, we have record high inefficiencies, which essentially uh, reduce the supply of ships. Um, you know, so it's COVID lockdowns. Um, you know. Uh, sanctions, uh, you know, all, all this basically increases the waiting time at ports. Um, and also a big impact effectively reducing the supply of ships is high bunker prices. And, you know, th that's something that intuitively you'd think would hurt, but actually it helps a lot uh, because everybody individually tries to maximize their profit. And you maximize your profit with high bunker prices by slowing your ship down and burning less fuel. And you know that reduces the supply of ships. Um, uh, so you know that the, the high bunker prices we're experiencing now are probably one of the strongest uh, you know influences uh, causing the dry bulk market to uh, to be to be, be higher, um, you know, uh, and with that, why don't I let others uh, address Great. the question? Yeah, and, and we can get into some more specifics uh, first. And maybe Martin, you can shed some light here. One unique thing about the recent rally or the strong market is how it's unique from previous ones where it's really been led by the smaller asset classes, right? Even today, a super max, even a handy size, is outperforming a cape size. So what is different in the current cycle that's maybe causing these smaller asset classes to outperform the capes? Well, if we look at the handy size that, that was written off a number of years ago as there was no future for them, everything will get larger and larger, which is all well and good if you trade to the eight or 10 large ports in the world, but with three, 400 ports in the world, the handies were always gonna, gonna, gonna be in, in demand. And especially with what's happened now, with as energy, as, as Hamish said, the recovery. Um, so you know, basically zero fleet growth. In fact, at times last year was negative, continuing this year. 
And then uh, obviously high bunker prices, but you overlay that with, with, with the red hot container market. And um, what's happened, of course, is that with container rates so high and, and people having to sail on certain schedules, everything that once upon a time was bulk that went into containers has come back out again. So we're seeing an awful lot of break bulk now back bag cargoes, other cargoes, uh, coal scrap, people might find it hard to bring grain, but millions of tons of these commodities go in containers every year because the container rates have been so cheap. This is now moving back in. So we, we are being really underpinned. And those of us that are fortunate to have uh, box told ships, we're finding that we're able to carry a, a reasonable number of containers and, and we're getting some unbelievable rates. I mean, when I look at what my team are fixing and we fixed one out the other day for 60 days at $50,000 a day on a 33. I mean, you pinch yourself. It is really, really hot out there. And that container market, yeah, it's, it's, it's not letting up anytime soon. So it's a combination, right time, right place. Supers, ultras, kind of similar again, but it's really is the handers that are really the, the superstars that we're finding on this market. And uh, I'm sorry about uh, Hamish and Ulrich and others that, you know, we're earning about three, four times their capes. But hey, it's our turn this time, yeah? <laughs> yeah, uh, Ulrich, you got a response to that? Yes. I think I'd like to arrest uh, that notion that the smaller segments outperform the cape sizes. Uh, yes, at this very moment uh, they are, but uh, we also had a low season of iron ore demand and uh, production, so the comparison is not completely fair. And if you want to put things a bit in perspective, then last year, uh, 2021, the average cape size rates were uh, 6,500 per day higher than the super index. Uh, and since 2019, it's been more than $5,000 per day every day. So uh, yes, right now, there are some factors that are impacting positively the, uh, the smaller segments. And, and look, we are happy about that. We want a strong, or can you say, floor uh, that would benefit us later. Uh, so, 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 so we are happy about this. And, and may I also add that we have 40% uh, of our Cape size, uh, sorry, of our fleet is, um, is Panamax. So they are, they are certainly benefiting uh, at that uh, you know, at this current situation as well. But I think we need a more nuanced discussion than just saying, okay, the, the smaller segments are, are outperforming. That is not how it has been uh, over time, not even in recent uh, uh, time. Uh, and then I think as an investor, of course, there are other considerations that you need to, to can you say, put into this as well. What is the cash break even uh, of the fleet? Uh, you know, what is the average aid of the fleet? How is the fuel consumption? How much, uh, can you say, intake do you have on your, on your vessels, uh, for instance, how many new Casamax and Casamaxes do you have? How much can you deduct of value uh, uh, out of, uh, can you say, the, the, the market? So there are many considerations here. And as I say, I just want to try and debate the notion that the smaller segments are outperforming. I think the world is a bit more, uh, can you say, uh, nuanced than that. Okay. And while I have you, Ulrich, if you can touch briefly on Russia, Ukraine. Right, that's certainly been a topic we're uh, getting questioned on a lot from investors. The impacts there to the dry bulk flows, anything that specifically you've seen on the Golden Ocean Fleet um, or other kind of anecdotal evidence of any disruptions there? Yeah, needless to say, uh, now I do it anyways. Uh, we are deeply uh, concerned about the humanitarian crisis that is uh, unfolding and, and, and naturally condemn the actions that are happening in Ukraine. And we hope the conflict ceases as soon as possible so we can have free flow of cargoes again, uh, and of course, peace in Europe. Um, so with that said, uh, then uh, can you say inherently us as a, as a, as you know, can you say our field composition, we are not as exposed uh, to the, to the, to the conflict. Uh, when the conflict broke out, we had two of our 92 vessels in the area. They are now, uh, they are now out. Um, so generally speaking, we haven't felt, uh, can you say the, uh, the direct consequences uh, so much. Um, Back to your question, if you look at how will this impact the market, then we uh, think it will have different impacts for different uh, segments and also depending on how long the conflict is. I don't want to talk now for 15 minutes, but if we just cut to the chase, we'll say that, a, can you say a shorter conflict is probably likely to be good for shipping, um, uh, whereas a, a longer conflict is, uh, is probably uh, more likely to be a bit negative. None of them massively uh, negative or massively uh, positive. Uh, I think for, for just to put a few more comments on, you have two kind of main cargo groups here. You have coal, 
which is uh, definitely uh, going to be allocated more inefficiently because the Russian coal can now no longer go to Europe, meaning that that has, come, has to come from yeah, as far away as Australia we have seen. Um, and that is likely to be able to adapt to a prolonged conflict, whereas the grains, which is uh, quite a large uh, chunk of Czech uh, seaborne grains coming out of Ukraine and, 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 and Russia, uh, is, uh, well, in the short term, probably replaceable from all destinations. But over time, we think that uh, there will be a demand uh, destruction. Um, but I'm sure that, uh, so again, we are not so exposed to the, to the grains trade. I'm sure that Martin and then some others will have, a, will have a, a better view on that, or maybe a different view even. Um, but, but generally speaking, as I said initially, uh, we hope this to be resolved quickly. But the consequences of this conflict for Golden Ocean, given our field compositions, are not insurmountable by any means. Hmm. Stomatis, if we can turn over to you, uh, touching on the major bulk, firstly coal, uh, since we've already discussed it a little bit, very important in the world's energy mix. I think news this morning that China was going to increase their coal power generation for the next few years. Obviously, inventories remain pretty low. Um, how big of an opportunity does that coal trade have for 2022, 2023, especially with the elevated natural gas prices and the disruption in the coal trade flows? Well, first of all, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity because uh, coal um, a few years ago was not even on the radar screen of uh, the Cape size uh, transportation. We, we did only like 5% of that. Right now that has increased to about 30 or even more percent. And uh, to Ulrich's point before, yeah, Russia is exporting 50 million tons of coal to Europe annually. And that has to come from longer distances and the Cape size segment is going to benefit substantially on that. We see the emergence of coal. The problem with coal is that years and years and years of underinvestment in the coal mines has led to coal shortages. So now um, the big charters are trying to make the catch-up game and they're trying to export as much coal as they can. Uh, unfortunately, BHP, Rio Tinto, um, Glencore, you know, they, they, they didn't invest as much as needed because coal, I remind you, a few years, a few years ago was a dead fuel to, to most of the market. And right now it's re-emerging again. So it's a great opportunity. It's going to require uh, some additional investment in the coal mines to see that catching up with the demand. But certainly we'll see a lot of coal uh, flows into Europe and uh, other places in the world that require a ton of energy. So that's our take. Okay. And then, Paulus, to you, on the other side of the, the major box, iron ore, what's your outlook for the iron ore trade 2022 beyond? If you can shed some light on you know, Chinese property markets, iron ore inventory levels, possible stimulus spending, um, and then obviously, of course, the Vale operations. Yes, I'm not the expert on the iron ore. Stamatis maybe takes this question, who is a Cape size guy. He tell us more details into that. I generally believe that iron ore will be stable. This is the information uh, I, I, I have. We don't carry that much of iron ore. We are all uh, coal and grains uh, and uh, other, other stuff on the Kamsa Maxis and on the Panamaxis. And, uh, but I believe that from uh, what I have researched on iron ore and what I'm hearing, it's more like a steady year, irrespective of if if stocks are up or down, but maybe one of the Cape guys can give us more in, input on the iron ore sector. Yeah, I, I you as, know, as, I, I think, as, I, sorry. As Tamati said, uh, we have uh, five or six Capes. Uh, we see more coal on those than in previous years. We see more coal sure. on those in previous years. Hamish, iron ore? Yeah, so uh, on iron ore, we actually have a pretty positive outlook for the next three years. Um, you know, first of all, China had in the past stated that it was intending to um, basically reduce its output of CO2 associated with steel production in 2025. That would be the peak year for CO2 production from, from steel. And now they've moved that plan to 2030, um, you know, which is basically another eight years, therefore, of steel production growth, as far as we can tell. And, you know, Brazil, um, you know, looks like it's, it's going to be producing more iron ore. And we think all of that will be taken up by the market. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we see strong demand for, uh, 
you know, steel exports from China as, you know, EU obviously is going to try to limit steel imports from Russia. Um, so, you know, the, all that we think is going to contribute to demand for iron ore. Uh, if I may add here to Hamish's point, uh, Brazil has been lagging significantly. They have been exporting the lowest amount of iron ore of the last 10 years. If that says something, they have exported less iron ore than the years that they did the Brumadinho mine, just to give you an idea. In order to catch up uh, Brazil and meet their targets, they need to double their exporting levels on a daily basis. And that's why, to Ulrich's point before, we strongly believe that capes are going to catch up significantly on the rest of the market because, uh, again, it's very simple. It's simple maths. In order to meet the 320 million tons, billion, sorry, million tons a year out of Brazil, as well as the other 50 or 60 from the minor producers, we will need to see Brazil exporting double the quantity starting from Q2 onwards. And that means that the cape size should be uh, catching up or even exceeding the other sectors because there's going to be huge volumes coming out of Brazil, which is the longest on mile between Brazil and China. Sure. Martin, we'll switch gears to minor bulks. What's your outlook for the grain trade and other minor bulks? Uh, continues to be very positive. has been very, very steady. And it's interesting, you look at US out, outstanding uh, grain sales uh, through later this year. It's a lot of grain. It's almost rivaling the amount last year. So there's a lot of demand. And then you look at what's happening, you know, Ukraine's large exporter, Russia number five. You've got a lot of countries, especially those on the doorstep that are now missing grain. There's a real scramble going on for the commodity, which like a lot of other commodities means tons, sea miles, get it from, from, from where you can. Obviously, longer term, if you remove those two countries, uh, it's an interesting one. Then the world really has to uh, kind of rethink what it wants to do. But at the moment, uh, I'd say there's serious talk about China having massive uh, weather problems for its crop this year and being very short. So I think it'll probably go to the highest bidder. But you look at certain African countries that get 100% of their grain from Ukraine and places, people have to get it from somewhere else. It's positive. A steel industry, as we just talked about, I mean, obviously, Chinese steel production slowed very dramatically last year. It's now very pleasing that it's uh, latest figures, it's 14% up on, on the low in November. That seems to be recovering. Uh, the housing industry, there's more stimulus going in. And also steel production, excluding China, the rest of the world, it's still continuing to be very positive. And if America starts with any of the infrastructure, then, then it's gonna be incredibly positive, which will also be, you know, ton sea miles long haul. So all in all, a, a very, very positive outlook overlaid with, as we'll come to later, literally very, very few ships delivering and next year, nothing delivering. So yeah, it's, so this could be multi-year. It's very positive. Yep, uh, our thoughts are exactly. Polis, how, um, how impactful, sorry, could uh, increased infrastructure spending in the US and elsewhere be to the dry bulk market? Yes, if, if the infrastructure projects of the U.S. Uh, go according to the announcements, this will be very, very good for the for the dry bulk sector, especially, especially the the smaller sectors, which in turn will imply better market also for the bigger ships. Because in my 35 years in shipping, I always remember that smaller ships were eating cargos when the market was improving from the bigger ones, like... Uh, uh, we were losing cargos to Supras and to Handys, uh, and the market could never recover. You know, out of uh, when when uh, these uh, these sectors uh, uh, like the small smaller vessels uh, have no not so good uh, prospect. Now these sectors have uh, very good prospects with what is happening on the container ships and the lack of new builds, especially on the Handys. They are fully occupied. And to the contrary, you know, I can tell you that uh, a couple of uh, months ago, we carried a couple of cargos of uh, Supras in, in uh, post-Panamaxis at better rates that we, we were receiving in the spot market on the, especially backhaul cargos on uh, our post-Panamax at the time. So 
uh, it shows that the story is reversing now and uh, the healthier are the, the smaller sectors, the longer will last the, the recovery of the dry bulk. And I'm very optimistic for the next two years at least because the order book on all sectors is, of dry bulk is, is very small compared to the last 20 years average. For example, we have an order book of 6% across the board with small differentiation about the, between the sectors, whilst the last 20 years order book average on the dry bulk fleet was 21%. So we managed to survive with 21% and make small profits, even with the you know, hands-on ship owners managed to make small profits. Okay, some other went out of business, but you know, I mean, the long-term players stayed afloat. And uh, with 21% order books on average, now with 6%, the people who know this business, they stand to make huge profits for the years to come. And I don't think that when the owners rush to invest their profits in new buildings, I don't think the yachts would be willing and they would be keen to build uh, dry bulk vessels because they are the cheaper of the lot. They will go for added value vessels like LNGs, container ships or other sectors like they are doing now, LPGs or even tankers, which also tankers are under, uh, under ordered at the moment. And uh, I think dry bulk, we will struggle to find birds in the future for many dry bulk uh, vessels, especially the small ones. So the guys who have uh, handies, they should ho keep hold on, the, on those vessels. And those vessels also will support our market as well. So I'm very optimistic, at least for two years. Okay. Staying on that uh, order bearing new builds, it's been a big topic of discussion and differing opinions on it. So Polis, uh, while we have you, if you can continue, you obviously decided to order some new buildings recently. So can you give some um, kind of color on that decision to order? And then Hamish, if you can counter that with deciding not to order recently. So uh, Polis, we'll start with you. Yes, two years ago, when we make the decision to invest in the new buildings, we were believing that uh, we would have a fast transition between, uh, between the, the type of ships on the environmental uh, front. So at the time we found good uh, uh, low, low consumption vessels, the so-called phase three, tier three new builds in Japan. We grabbed those at prices that they were very attractive uh, uh, at levels that we haven't seen for, for 20 years. So we thought to invest uh, there. Of course, now the, 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 the things in front of us are, are delaying, will delay the, the, the switch to the new energy and to the new fuels with what is happening now uh, with the sanctions of Russia and, of Russia and the, the power game and the energy game that is being, is being developing. So I believe there would be a delay, which is, uh, which is uh, good for our market. It's bad for the environment, of course, but it's good for our market that this will delay for a year or two. So I think that uh, the timing of our investment was very good. We get delivery next month, sorry, in May of our first of those new buildings and another eight vessels in the course of next 18 months. And we're very happy about the investment because all, already these ships are worth uh, 12 to 15 million more than the prices we paid on it. So there's a $100 million appreciation of uh, value of course, it's not reflected in our stock price, but you know this is uh, not for me to influence. You know, uh, but I think it was the right move for the right reason. But this right reason will not happen uh, as as soon as we were expecting. But still, it's a good investment for us. Sure, Amish. Well, I mean, the re the reason we haven't ordered new buildings is is basically that um, if you look at secondhand tonnage. You know, a modern secondhand ship is you know, a good bit cheaper than a new building. New buildings are really expensive right now. And you know, your, your modern secondhand ship is in the market at a strong point in the market. We're very optimistic about the market for the next two or three years at least. But if you look at the forward market, the, you know, the FFA market, 
you know, when your new building would be delivered, which would be, you know, probably early 2025 or, you know, possibly right at the end of 2024, you know, the, the FFA market is, is not high. Uh, so there, there's no, you know, you can't hedge your new building um, in that FFA market. And, you know, also the ship you order today is almost certainly not the ship you're going to want in 2030. Now, nobody really knows what ship you're going to want, given the regulations that, you know, will be there in 2030, which we don't really know for a fact yet, uh, either what precise regulations will be there. But you, wh whatever, you know that the ship you order won't be the ship you want. And probably in two years, you can order a ship that you might want in 2030. So there's some reason to wait. Um, but, you know, frankly, we think that an older ship that has less life past 2030 is, is probably a better financial investment right now, yep. given, given, you know, the, the regulations that are going to be uh, in, in place. Yes, the Mattis. I was going to turn that to you as well. Kind of your thoughts around new buildings versus modern second hands versus older second hands. I know a lot of your vessels are... 2009, 10, 11, 12 built. Um, what are your thoughts on those three kind of tiers of tonnage? Well, um, in hindsight, uh, I think the deals that the safe bunkers uh, did in the new buildings are great, great deals. And I think that uh, these ships, uh, especially coming out of uh, from Japan, will have uh, much longer value than the 2030 uh, cutoff point. Uh, now, I think the opportunity is uh, pretty much uh, gone. Uh, the, 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 the price appreciation of the new building has gone to levels where it makes it completely uneconomical, knowing what the future rate uh, is going to be, like Jaime said. So I don't think it makes any economic sense. But moving back to the point as to whether the FFA should denominate uh, you know, decisions to build ships or not, they should not. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, if we had more clarity about what the vessel of tomorrow would look like, uh, then obviously, you know, people would make a more educated decision. Right now, I don't think we have all the right aspects, um, uh, the, the right, uh, you know, data in front of us to make a decision about uh, putting new buildings at uh, mid-high $60 million on the Cape size alone from our side. Yep. Martin, staying on the order book, order book to fleet ratio is six and a half percent or so, what is kind of preventing it from going to 10 to 15 to 20? Or does that happen once we get some clarity around propulsion regulations? I think that's very important propulsion. I think as all of us sitting here as experienced ship owners, the thing we've learned over the years is you don't want to be the first of anything. You sit on your hands, you watch and wait and see. You know, go back just before I started the business in the early 70s with uh, gas turbines, and we all want to remember back that fall happened to those owners. And, and I think it's still very, very, the, the, the jury's out. I mean, is it LNG? Is it ammonia? There's a whole load of questions. And also human nature, man, it is very, very ingenious. And, and I think I suspect the rules will change. So, yes, you know, obviously what Polius did, brilliant. We, we also... Uh, you know, took a couple of delivery in 2019 and, and a couple of ships that uh, delivered on period in 2020, we now have purchase options on and, and eye-watering. But you actually want ships on the market now, as Hamish rightly says, you want them on the water now earning. So to be going forward, we are in a business with the lemmings and they always say that, uh, you know, that the end of a good market is when an owner builds their way out of it. But at the moment, it, it, there's no sign of it happening. And I think absolutely right. I mean, yard capacity is a lot less from, from the heady times of 10, 11 years ago. And yards, I mean, if, if you're talking now, in our case, an Ultramax pushing towards 40 million in Japan for delivery two years from now, it doesn't make any sense. It, it's secondhand is, is where the value is. And then we'll probably come on to it. Secondhand prices have a long way to go. They are very much undervalued basis today's earnings. Hmm. So yeah, well, I think we've all been in the business too long. Never say never. And everyone's got short memories, but at the moment, I think uh, there is no sign. And if they do, it's years before the idiots can destroy the market. Sure. And Ulrich, one, one thing that's been kind of underappreciated uh, by some is a lot of focus on new buildings or, or lack thereof in a good way, but the order book being so low. The other side of the equation, you have a lot of vessels already over 20 years of age. Um, 
many more aging into that kind of 20 year threshold in the coming years. So how do you view scrapping uh, in the next few years? Clearly with rates being where they are today, not much scrapping is gonna happen. However, as Hamish mentioned earlier, fuel prices are very high, steel prices are very high. So there are some incentives at least to scrap, especially ahead of IMO 2023 and beyond. So what are you, uh, what are you seeing for scrapping this year, next year? I think the story of dry bulk is about uh, reasonable uh, demand growth and exceptionally low fleet growth, uh, coupled with uh, inefficiencies from coal allocation, coupled with inefficiencies from COVID, coupled with inefficiencies from IMO 2023 regulations, which perhaps we'll touch upon more later. I don't see this as a scrapping story. There will be some scrapping for sure. There always is, but strong rates uh, will, uh, will, will, will make this uh, limited. So for me, scrapping is a non-issue, uh, really. Uh, I don't think it's where, uh, where this, because uh, what, what would be the drive of the money? Sure. Uh, All right, I, let's focus. Uh, for, if if I may add here for a moment, I agree generally with Ulrich uh, in what he said. Also, let us not forget that um, all the decoupling that uh, happened in 2018 and 19 for the ballast water treatment system means that uh, a lot of ships or all the remaining ships will need to install ballast water treatment system. And that's a very expensive and timely uh, and time uh, consuming exercise, especially in China. So you will have all the older assets that escape, uh, you know, the 2018 to 20 uh, first installation wave, all of them installing ballast water treatment system, which is a very heavy uh, investment on its own. Uh, second to that, the new environmental regulations that I'm pretty sure that we'll discuss uh, later on today, uh, a lot of ships will become uneconomical and not being able to compete. So let's have all that in the back of our minds because from 2023 onwards, it's not going to be the same landscape for all the ships out there uh, in comparison. That's, that's my take. Yeah, no, I can, I can just follow up quickly on that. Yes, uh, so... I'm talking from a market perspective, I don't think scrapping would be an issue, but it is absolutely true that for those that do not have a modern fleet, Golden Ocean has the youngest fleet among the listed owners. Uh, for them, uh, there would be a lot of capex here that you have to keep thinking about as an investor that you know, you'd have to throw into uh, upgrading your vessels to comply with IMO 2023, potentially reducing the top speed or the capture speed of your engine, ballast water treatment systems, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously these costs will come out of the cash flow. So that's negative, but we can be sure that these vessels will, for the most part, unless they are really, really old, uh, be able to find trades in which they can in which they can be employed. And if the cape rates are going as we believe they are, uh, Panamax for that matter, and all the other classes, then, uh, then, then, then there will not be so much scrapping, but that doesn't mean it's gonna be cheap for the owners to keep them uh, on the water. It will probably just still make sense to do it. So that was my point. All right, let's drill a little deeper into the IMO regulations there. Obviously, a lot of um, talk around what the IMO is going to do next. Now, we already know, starting in 2023, ramping up into 2030 and obviously 2050. Um, but for the current fleet, how will it comply? Uh, what are you maybe specifically doing to prepare? Hamish, start us off. Well, so basically, the single most powerful thing you can do to reduce the fuel consumption of a ship is to go slower. You know, because a ship basically burns fuel in, in rough proportion to the cube of the speed. So you go a little bit slower, you burn a lot less fuel. So that, that's, that's a big thing. You know, for most of our ships, um, you know, so-called engine power limitation gets us into the uh, carbon intensity indicator and, and uh, EEXI regimes, uh, no problem. For some of our other ships, uh, you know, we're putting on energy saving devices, which are, you know, Mevis ducts, which you can look up on Wikipedia, or fancy uh, anti-fouling paints, or hull cleaning robots, uh, or ultrasonic anti-fouling. You know, basically, besides going slower, the thing that really hurts you is hull fouling. And so addressing hull fouling is, is probably the second most important thing you can do. We're spending a lot of time and attention on that. Hmm. Okay. And then Stomatis, back to you. Any thoughts on the winning fuel five years from now? Is it LNG? Is it ammonia? Is it methanol, hydrogen, something else? 
Surely, I don't want to take a bet on that. I mean, <laughs> we don't know what that is going to look like in the future, and that's the list uh, of the points today that I would like to to take a guess. Uh, going back to energy saving devices, uh, we are doing installations on all of our ships to make them more competitive from now until 2030. Um, we have done it either in cooperation with the charters or on our own, uh, and we have made advanced modeling uh, to proven with proven solutions to reduce by anywhere between 12 and 15%, which is quite significant. But as for the fuel of tomorrow, I certainly don't want to take any, any wild guesses here. Okay. All right, let's focus on capital allocation, asset values, operations, congestion. So I'm gonna ask each of you kind of one, one question on a variety of topics here. So starting with you, um, Martin, a number of you on the panel and most of the dry bulk industry at this point have recently updated their capital allocation programs or policies, either paying out dividends or share buybacks or a combination. You know, Starbulk uh, along with Genco were among the first to update and change their capital allocation policies. So why was this an attractive route to go? I know many of you, your share prices are at multi-year highs. So one would argue it, it seems to be working. Uh, Martin, I know you recently started a new capital allocation program. Can you give some kind of color on that? Well, I think you've got to reward long-suffering shareholders. And obviously at the moment we're, we're printing money. So we, we introduced our policy, 30%. Uh, it is conservative as we showed in the last quarter, we were actually, despite doing share buybacks, we, we, we still maintain what we paid in, in, in Q3. And I, th I think owners are in a very fortunate position, but you always got to remember that you've got to reduce debt down to, to a degree in a good market and put yourself with a bulletproof balance sheet going forward. But as the cash mounts up, I mean, th this year Q Q1 is already, I mean, incredibly, insanely, uh, are profitable so we're well ahead of, of last year and you look at what's happening in q2 so i think it'll it'll be adapted as we go along but very much so you've got to reward the shareholders great dividend yield and uh, but also with an eye on on you know keep the cash in the bank we've also got a number of purchase options which uh you know some of them in dollars some of them in in, in yen of course with the way the yen is these days to the dollar i mean th these are dirt cheap and we have some older ships Although it was interesting, it was Polis uh, made the comment, don't, don't get rid of your handers. And yes, that's always the issue. We have some older handers, but, but boy, they're cash cows. But it's a great position to be in. So rewarding shareholders, but having the flexibility. My CFO, Steve, as you know well, always said, you know, in the past, it was always wondering where the money is coming from. Now it's a matter of what we do with the money. It's a great position to be in. And as usual, on a market like this, you don't want to blow it going forward. And I think to be flexible, rewarding shareholders, but with one idea, we all know shipping, you know, things do happen, but it's okay. very exciting. Okay. Paulus, you mentioned kind of a strengthening secondhand asset values and looking forward, obviously very strong supply demand dynamics, uh, steel prices remain at elevated levels. And you're saying, and I probably agree, that asset values are still undervalued. So how does that impact your secondhand acquisition versus sale strategy? Uh, look, uh, if we find an opportunity on a secondhand uh, vessel, we may purchase one of those. If, if, uh, if, if one sector is not performing well, temporarily, you may find an opportunity left and right. But there are not many opportunities in secondhand Generally speaking, you see five-year-old uh, Max is asking uh, 40 million or trying to sell for 40 million. So for us, we are not going to buy on those prices. So we have to continue the deleverage in any form, whether this is via, via loans or other means. And uh, at the right time, by the old ship, uh, we may find there. Recently, we start giving a dividend back to shareholders. But at the same time, we have an order book to take delivery. We want to take delivery of that order book with the minimal debt added on for those ships, maybe with very little debt. And we keep uh, going like that. And uh, as I said, I believe in a very strong market. And if I may be allowed to make one more comment on the previous topic of scrapping, I don't expect uh, any increase on scrapping for 22 and 23. We'll stay very, very low the scrapping. But the scrapping, I believe when the market corrects, will be the safety valve for the dry bulk market for many years to come. 
So there's a lot of ships to be scrapped and go out of business. If the market corrects in 25 or 26, there will be many ships to go out of the market that will ensure maybe the market not at $35,000 or $30,000, but at $20,000 could be sustainable for the rest of the decade. And this is very good news for all dry bulk owners. Yeah. Sure. I, I, should, I should just quickly point out that, you know, you don't have to scrap to shrink the fleet if everybody slows down in order to decarbonize. That's a very powerful effect. Get that, get that cubed root going. Um, that's fair. Yes, the, I guess, the, uh, one part of the fleet will slow down definitely with the new regulations. Some part will scrap because some charters won't be there to fix those ships. So there is an age limitation. I mean, people, they don't want to carry. And you have to remember, we're getting into a phase of expensive commodities and pe people don't want to, to even call now is an expensive commodity. People don't want to put uh, high value uh, cargoes into, into vessels that are over 20 years old. So this will be also in the game. Ulrich, my question for you is about leverage and debt, right? Uh, this is kind of a new question that the industry's really had to answer uh, in recent years. Just a few years ago it was survival. Who cares about our leverage ratios, right? Um, whereas now it's what is the ideal leverage ratio? Some want to go zero debt, some want to go net debt zero. Um, some think 30% is a good threshold. What do you say? Yeah, I'll focus on Golden Ocean. Um, we believe that a certain amount of debt is, uh, uh, makes sense. Uh, but certainly when you go into uh, the high cycle, which we're going into now, uh, you'd want to be below 15 of you, which, which we are. So we, um, we, main, uh, we maintain uh, that, uh, that uh, leverage uh, uh, going into the cycle. And it means that we have, what can you say, some, uh, some leeway to go uh, as and when the market uh, turns as it, as it inevitably uh, will uh, at some point. Uh, so when you couple that with a solid, solid balance sheet uh, on the cash side, uh, we believe that, uh, that uh, you stand uh, at a strong uh, place, which then allows, and it's going a bit back to Martin, but it ties together to the uh, capital allocation strategy, of course, which means that when you have your house in order, uh, you can also, with good conscience, uh, pay out uh, a lot of dividends. Certainly, when you see the prices have gone as they have, uh, have, the, have, they have gone, uh, it's too expensive now, uh, or certainly, you know, maybe there's more upside, but we feel it's too expensive to buy into that. Uh, and uh, that means that the, can you say, the excess capacity then can be plowed back to the to the to the shareholders and and I mean if we look at last year we paid 500 million dollar in in uh, in dividends on a market cap around two two and a half billion. We bought 18 vessels on water in in February last year. We contracted further seven vessels in the middle of the year. Came some access for delivery in uh, early 2023. So you can say we kind of made our we made our play. We have uh, bolstered the can you say the the uh, the balance sheet with, with with cash and with low debt. Um, and uh, now we are ready to go into a to, to this can you say yield phase where we where we reward the uh, shareholders. So so we to answer shortly, we believe we are at a good place with around 45, 48 percent uh, uh, leverage. Got it. Thank you. All right, we only have a few minutes left, so I'll uh, ask a few more questions here. Interesting dynamic in a strong market is the decision to lock in time charters versus continuing to play the spot market. Stomatis, my question for you. Most of your fleet, if not all, is on some kind of contract, either some fixed rate or index linked. How do you view this dynamic in the current market? Well, uh, in our opinion, this is the best uh, way to go. We still believe that the market has uh, tremendous upside and the index linked charters that we have gives us the best um, the flexibility. I mean, first of all, the ships are employed at all times. We do not bother with the bunker prices or bunker uh, you know, to, to get bankers on board of ships or anything like that. We get a great premium on the scrubbers that uh, we have installed. And at the same time, we maintain this flexibility in order to fix the ships from fixed to uh, from floating to fixed. So we have this embedded option that we can uh, basically move from floating to fixed for certain periods. And that has proven to be very, very good, um, very profitable for our shareholders. So for us, that's the way forward. We will continue this kind of index link transactions. And when we see rates above 30,000 or more uh, on the chips, then we might be locking in some additional fixed rate uh, on the ships. That's, that's the plan. Yeah. 
All right, Hamish, my question uh, for you is about scrubbers. Wouldn't it be a shipping panel without the word scrubbers and discussing it briefly? Clearly, fuel spreads have soared in recent week. You know, fuel prices very high for VLSFO, HSFO, not as high, clearly. Um, so you're locking in some pretty nice premiums here. Can you elaborate on what those levels are for Cape size versus Panamax versus Supermax? Sure. Well, of course, e e all of the ship types are getting pretty much the same spread on a per ton basis, uh, you know, which is between a, right, it's between 190 and $200 a ton right now. We're basically getting the full spread between high sulfur and low sulfur fuel. So it's really just a question of how much fuel the ships burn. Um, and you know that that's sort of very dependent on the routes uh, and and uh, you know but uh, uh, on an annual basis we burn about eight hundred thousand tons of fuel with our fleet so you know it, you can kind of multiply eight hundred thousand tons by the the spread between high sulfur and low sulfur fuel and you know that's that's what it's adding it's you know yeah. order of you know oh it's over a hundred million a year. Uh, it could be as high as 150. On a dollar per day basis, 4,000 to 8,000, depending on vessel? Well, it depends. It depends. Yeah, I mean, uh, on a cape that's that's burning 50 tons a day, while it is burning 50 tons a day, right? Sure. I mean, we're saving like $10,000 a day. Of course, you know, it's not always burning fuel. It's at port a, a good bit of the time, but yeah, you know, it, it's a big effect. Okay. Uh, Martin, but one more question, and then we'll get briefly to the lightning round. So Martin, my last question for you, clearly there's been a lot of consolidation or maybe privatization uh, in the LNG sector, some in container ships, a little bit in tankers in recent years, not a ton per se in dry bulk, although there have been some privates being bought, bought via ships for shares, what have you. What are your thoughts on consolidation uh, in the dry bulk industry? Yeah, it, it, it's in some ways it's almost inevitable, but but then again, it's the cultural fit for fleets. Obviously, we're sitting there. It is quite a topic of conversation on the markets with us having 20 uh, basically brand new handers, ultras. No one else out there's got them. We, we There are people that obviously look at us the whole time, consolidation, and we're the fleet upgrade a lot of people want. But like anything, I mean, we've been around 50 years. We've got existing operating business relationships in Japan. Um, is it necessary? I mean, Hamish, is, is, is they're, they're the big boys with a $3 billion market cap. It, it's fantastic. You know, we're, we're pushing towards 500, which is great. But like anything in shipping, it's also you've got to have one eye on, on if, if, if and when things change. It's not if, sorry, that sounds my CFO. When things change eventually, and it will in the years to come, you've also got to be the right size. So, so it's interesting. Consolidation for the sake of consolidation? No. But... but yeah. Culturally, if the fleets work and you can make it work, then 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 very much so. If it's wrong, you can probably destroy brands as well. But uh, I think there are possibilities as we go forward on this market. Yeah, very much so. Fair. All right, we have three minutes left, so I'll do three lightning round questions. One word answer is all we need. So, Stomatis, starting with you, dry bulk ton mile demand growth in 2022. Well, our opinion is about uh, 5%. That's where we see the growth. Okay, Ulrich? Let's say more than a supply uh, a growth for sure. For the next, and that's for the next coming years. And that was more than one word. It was, but uh, okay, Paulus. Well, ton, ton miles? Ton mile demand growth, percentage terms. Should be six, 7%, I think. Wow. Okay, Hamish. Uh, I, I'm I'm with Ulrich. It's more than the fleet growth, but it's enough more that it's going to be helpful. Okay. Well, the next question is fleet growth. But all right, um, Martin, give me a percentage for demand growth. Between four and five percent. Okay, and then supply growth. Lightning round question two: supply growth this year. Uh, this year, two two and a half percent, absolute tops. Yeah, certainly less next year, but for this year, Stamatis? Yeah. On a net basis, we believe supply is going to grow less than 1.2%. Wow, okay. Uh, Ulrich, supply growth? I'll repeat my answer from before that. Uh, can you say the supply? Less, uh, 
Hvala, Polas. 2%, 2% on net basis. Yep. Amen. And I, and I actually think it's going to be very small, like less than 2%, because basically the fleet is going to slow down. The, you know, the high fuel prices are really good for shrinking the capacity yep. of the fleet. All right, last question. Fortunately, this is virtual, so Nicholas can't come and slap me to get me off the stage. But um, Martin Wade, give me an average rate for handy sizes for 2022. Spot rate, full year 2022. Uh, average for the year, looking where we've come from, uh, between 25 and $30,000 a day. Okay, Stomatis, Cape size average rate, full year this year. At least the same level as like, like the year that was 31, at least. Okay, um, Polis, Cape, Pana, you pick an asset class and give me a full year average rate. A full year, so 25 for Kamsamax, 30 for Capes. Okay, Hamish? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm with, with Polis, you know, th 30 for Capes, 25 for, for Kamsars, and, and, you know, Handys maybe are going to be through the roof, who knows? Wow, through the roof. All right, Ulrich, last word. Yes, um, Cape sizes uh, repeat up last year around low 30s, but uh, remember, of course, uh, Golden Ocean and I think also some of the other owners, we have uh, Newcastle Max with a scrub upside, et cetera, et cetera. So the reality is that we will harvest more from that. But from a Baltic perspective, around low 30s, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm uh, mirroring uh, now, I didn't get who said that, that around 25, uh, maybe a bit higher on the, on the, on the Panamaxes. Okay, perfect. Thank you again, gentlemen, Nicholas. Thanks. Sorry for going over a few minutes. Dry bulk's an exciting time. So uh, thanks for giving us a few extra moments to, to share. Well, thank you thanks very for... much. Tremendous panel as expected. I mean, look at the attendance. Thank you uh, very much uh, to everybody. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye.